3: With deep
4: jawbreaker eyes Red rope hair Gumdrop lips Cotton candy thighs You're my cat!
0: Those wonderful, chilling sounds. Yes, that's right, Uncle Frank. It's time for our October podcast, the podcast where all things Halloween are celebrated. But first of all, we'd like to welcome everyone back and to apologize for being so spotty this last season. But this year, we promise to work hard at getting out all of the content more or less on time. And I can tell you that Uncle Frank and I both look forward to providing a lot of great shows this year. But first, there's tonight. Uncle Frank, what do we have on the docket?
2: Lots of Halloween novelty songs and commercials, of course, and a tribute to the great master of the maniacal laugh, Dwight Fry, scene-stealer of universal horror. We also have interviews with people who've seen real werewolves in Wisconsin, then a macabre reading of a monstrous story by Tolstoy's cousin, The Family of the Vordelac, plus the sinister radio drama Casting the Runes, all wrapped up with horrifying sounds and sound clips, and more stuff, of course. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started.
4: Honky Tonk Halloween. All the monsters are having a time. The dealer dressed like Frankenstein. The Dracula drives a truck my day, and the scarecrows have been out the hay. Well, all the freaks on the trailer park scene. It's a honky tonk Halloween. Honky tonka Halloween. talk Halloween
5: of yesterday is now the terrifying film experience of the future for technical reasons the preview you are about to see is not three-dimensional be assured parasite is the most gripping and frightening movie you will ever see and in 3d you will be part of the terror you are about to witness the future be warned It is a shocking sight. 3D, the ultimate sensation of visual art, now creates the newest, most terrifying form of fear, parasite.
6: That thing on your stomach. A new strain of
7: parasite. When it reproduces, it will cast millions of microscopic spores into the air. Just move your legs towards me real slow.
3: Real
5: Mm -hmm. slow. Experience the living, Breathing, terrifying vision of modern 3-D. Parasite. You have only seen the preview. In 3-D, you will live the film. Parasite. The first futuristic monster movie in 3-D. Parasite.
6: A new life
8: to come. We must find another brain. You do not quite get what I mean.
9: Herr Frankenstein was interested only in human life. First to destroy it, then recreate it. There
5: you have his mad dream. Go on, fix the electrodes. Think of it the brain of a dead man, waiting to live again in a body I made with my own hands with my own hands you're crazy
8: crazy am i we'll see whether i'm crazy or not i created it i made it with my own hands from the bodies i took from graves from the gallows anywhere quite a good scene isn't it one man crazy three very same
4: spectators to it. it's, alive. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. Oh, in the name of God. Now oh, I know what it feels
3: like
5: to be God.
10: Hello. I'm here to help you set up and give your haunted house tour. On side two of this record, you'll find a very scary story, all complete with music and sound effects. This story was created for you to play while you take your friends through your haunted house. It's a great way to make your tour seem more real, scarier, and a lot more fun. There is a complete explanation in your haunted house party guide. So it will help you learn what to do if you follow the guide as I go through all the step-by-step directions.
9: The man's gone crazy.
6: Who wants to eat flies?
9: You do, ya loony.
6: Not when I can get nice fat
7: spiders.
2: (laughs) So beautiful. That scene conjures up memories of Saturday afternoon and late night television of horror hosts, rubber masks, and Ben Cooper costumes, of monster models, wax juice creatures, and Halloween. In other words, childhood. And the person who steals that scene is Dwight Fry, known in the 1930s as the man with a thousand-watt stare and the man with a thousand deaths. He lived up to both these nicknames, always an impressive presence in all of his films, no matter how small the part, and usually getting killed before the end of the movie. Fry now, and even back then, was and is known for his offbeat characters, but he could play much, much more, and he did just that for the first ten years of his career. He began on the stage and performed in dramas, comedies, and even musicals, but of course I still love him best for his contributions to monster movies and his beautiful laugh. Tonight we celebrate the man, and we start that off with another clip of his work.
9: To be attacked by a giant, that is enough to shatter anyone's nerves.
3: She talks about it all the time. How it flew in her face and tried to sink its teeth in her throat.
8: No, 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 no. That's no do. They soft like cat. They not bite Herman.
1: Why, (laughs) Herman? There
8: now, soft, nice.
9: There. See. What did I tell you? Perhaps there's something in what Kringen says. Seems strange that a human being should want to play with bats.
1: Ah.
8: (laughs) You give me apple, Herman give you nice, soft bat. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Let's go back before the crazy eyes and the blood-curdling giggle. Dwight Fry was born blandly in Salina, Kansas in 1899, and later, while still a child, moved with his parents to Colorado. Fry was artistically inclined from the start. He drew, painted, and was given voice and piano lessons. Apparently, he was good at all of it, especially the piano. But acting got into his blood, and it held on. He was a frequent audience member at the traveling shows that came through town, and soon was performing himself. While in college, he was offered a job at the Denver Stock Company, where he began to act professionally. When the company moved to Washington State, he moved with them, and for the next two years, he traveled with the troupe, slowly learning his craft and getting better and better roles. When he felt ready, Dwight Fry decided to try his luck in New York City. His first job in The Big Apple was only a bit role in a vaudeville act, but then he got other roles in traveling shows and began to get good reviews. In 1922, the producer Brock Pemberton, who went on later to produce Harvey and other great plays and founded the Tony Awards, took notice of Dwight Fry's work, and he gave him a role in The Plot Thickens. This began a seven-year run for Dwight. He was on Broadway now, doing good work, getting great reviews, and even being voted by the critics one of the top ten best actors currently on stage. Dwight earned all his good fortune. He was a hard worker, and he always was by himself off stage during a performance, continuing to work on his part right up till he went on, and keeping in character. One of his colleagues later claimed that Dwight was one of the very early method actors. In 1928, Dwight was married to Laura Bullivant, an actress hailing from Spokane, Washington. Together they opened a tea house on the side to bring in more money. Things were good. Then the stock market crashed. The depression hit Broadway very hard, and the couple lost their tea room too. So, like many others, the Fry's decided to move west to California. Fry got a role there in the play The Rope's End, playing one of the murderers. This play later was turned into the Alfred Hitchcock movie Rope. This was also the beginning of Dwight Fry's long run of playing weirdos. While performing on stage, Dwight was spotted by a talent scout and given a short contract with Warner Brothers. This gave him a part as a gangster in Doorway to Hell and a better role in Man to Man, where he played a guy trying to frame a rival for bank robbery. But it was at Universal that Fry cemented his typecasting with Dracula. It was the character of Renfield that made him famous. Others went out for the Renfield role, but I don't see how the director could think of anyone else for the part after seeing Fry's version. And ever since his appearance in this movie, his Renfield has been the touchstone for all actors who attempt to play the role of the madman. I'm sure Dwight loved all the attention, and when he acted next in the version of The Maltese Falcon, things must have seemed to be going along fine. But then his next good role was Fritz in Frankenstein. This character of Frankenstein's hunchback assistant gave him some great scenes, some disturbing enough to be cut. He was also pivotal to the plot. It was Fritz's torturing of the monster that brought out its dark side. These first three sound films show the trend. Fry's juicy roles were villains and wackos. The other parts were often minor. Another example of his more prominent roles is Herman Glib in The Vampire Bat a man who was suspected of being a vampire because he loved bats. To be attacked by a giant bat is enough to shatter anyone's nerves.
3: She talks about it all the time, how it flew in her face and tried to sink its teeth in her throat.
8: No, 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 bats no do. They soft, like cat. They not bite Herman. (laughs) Herman. There, no. Soft. Nice.
9: There. See? What did I tell you? Perhaps there's something in what Kringan says. Seems strange that a human being should want to play with bats.
1: Ah. <laughs>
8: You give me apple, Herman give you nice, soft bat.
2: (laughs) After the vampire bat, Fry played a deranged aerialist in the Circus Queen murder and had a small role in the Invisible Man. But then to his happiness, he was called back to New York into the Broadway stage. For the next 18 months, both in New York and LA, He worked in the theater again, playing varied roles for a change, but in 1935, he was pulled back into horror. James Wales was making The Bride of Frankenstein, and had combined two characters, a grave robber and a village idiot, specifically for Fry. He wanted Fry to create a likable, albeit murderous, lunatic. The character was Carl Glutz, and although an awful lot of his more sinister business was cut from the film, he still shined. Originally, he was to kill the Burgermeister and blame it on the monster. They kept a lot of his good lines, though. We don't have any of them here, but here's what we do have.
8: Carl. You must go to your friend at the accident hospital. What we need is a female victim of sudden death. Can you do it? You promised me a thousand crowns. It will be well worth it, and the Baron will pay. Yes, yes. Go and get it. I'll try. It's beating perfectly, just as in life. Oh, if only I can keep it
2: going. After The Bride of Frankenstein, Dwight's roles were often smaller. He did play a grim scientist instead of an assistant in The Crime of Dr. Crespi, and was a flamboyant makeup artist and something to sing about. But he also played parts that were credited as hysterical patient or desk clerk. But big or small, through the 30s, he continued to work, and he still did horror movies like The Ghost of Frankenstein and Frankenstein Meets the Man. During the early 40s, Dwight did more stage work along with his movies. This again allowed him to do more varied parts. One of the plays, though, was a Los Angeles production of Dracula, where he reprised his role as Renfield. During this time, Dwight also worked as a draftsman at night for Lockheed for the war effort. He was too old for the draft. In 1943, Dwight received a big break. He was offered the role of Newton Baker, the Secretary of War in the Wilson Administration, in the color movie Wilson. Fry was great for the role. He even looked like Baker. On November 7, 1943, While riding the bus with his son coming back from the movies, Dwight Fry had a heart attack and died on the way to the hospital. It was only a few days before he was to start shooting Wilson. Dwight Fry was a frustrated actor, but he took pride in his work and he put his heart into whatever role he got. At home he was nothing like the madman he played so well. He was a stable family man who liked to paint and play the piano and make greeting cards for people. He never really ran around with the party crowd. During the late 40s and early 50s, he began to fade from memory. But with the coming of the horror hosts, new generations were introduced to Dwight Frye and fell in love with him. He began to creep back just a little into popular culture. Alice Cooper even wrote a ballad to him. So here's to the man with a thousand-watt stare who helped make our childhood great. The Amazing Dwight Frye.
3: I
9: haven't the least idea in the world. We've come to ask for shelter. We've lost our way.
3: What is it? What do they want?
9: They want to know if they can stay here for the night.
1: My sister Rachel had this room once. She died when she was 21. Bless our Lord. This is the husband. He'll approve the whole tonight. Amen. To
3: those lights. I suppose it's a store.
5: Here we are, six people sitting around. What do we know about each other? Not a thing.
3: I've got a funny feeling something dreadful might happen to us.
9: You don't seem to understand. We may be cut off. Shut up in this house.
4: There's a madman upstairs.
6: You shouldn't have come here. You see, it may be dangerous.
3: Oh, Philip, not something else
6: horrible. You're afraid, aren't you? You Don't believe in God, and yet you're afraid to die. One magical, haunted evening each year when all the scary creatures come out to prowl through every neighborhood. But here's the scariest monster of all. Do you know why? This little witch doesn't know it, but she's taking some frightening chances of being hurt. Maybe badly hurt. Her costume is very, very dangerous. Can you see the things that make it dangerous? What about that mask? She can hardly see through those tiny holes for her eyes. If you were wearing that mask, here's what it would be like. You can see straight in front of you, but unless you happen to turn your head, you wouldn't see that car coming as you start to cross the street. You could be run over. And unless you look down, you can't see that you're coming to a curb. Ow! That hurts! It's bad enough to take a tumble on hard pavement, that it would be even worse to sprawl out on the street in front of a car coming. Now let's imagine that we're in that car. Can you see her clearly? Why not? What is there about her costume that makes it hard to see her? As the driver of a car or truck, you might not see her until it's too late. And that's really scary. Coming soon.
5: Jolting Tales of Horror. Creep Show. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. You'll scream at ghastly ghouls. Cringe at weird kids and shiver at the doings of evil doctors. This is going to be extremely painful, Mr. Vero. Oh. Creep Show
3: will Can grab I'm... you,
5: ah. grow on you, and give you the creeps.
3: No,
9: this is going to be an entirely new experience.
5: Creep Show, the most fun you'll ever have being scared. <laughs> Little Peanuts characters at a Happy Halloween special. It's The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Monday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain.
11: Open the doors and let all the little ones in. Don't make them wait. It's a happy time there. After today is Children's Day at the morgue the smiles and red rosy cheeks here they come right through the gate hear the sound of joy laughter today is children's day at the morgue i love to see them at play but it moves me to tears have to be sure that they don't take away souvenirs the little dears there will be ice Cream, candy and cake and balloons. Don't you be late. Come along and bring the family. Today is Children's Day at the morgue. See them at play, but it moves me to tears Have to be sure that they don't take away souvenirs The little dears There will be ice cream Candy and cake and balloons Don't you be late Come along and bring the family Today is Children's Day I say it's Children's Day Hurry, it's Children's Day at the mall. Ah, when I hear those tender songs of childhood, I get all choked up. What a time we had on the last Children's Day. It was a picnic.
12: The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality, and of our frightful position therein, that we shall either go mad from the revelation, or flee from the light into the peace and safety of a new dark age.
9: The night. What music they make.
2: at bedtime, and we return to another Night with a Vampire.
8: Good
13: evening. Please leave the light on. The second of our nightly vigils is to be held in the company of Count Alexis Tolstoy, cousin to the more famous Leo. He wrote this story, The Family of the Vordelak in St. Petersburg in the late 1830s. At the time, he was abused in the press for such morbid fantasies, which were attributed to overindulgence in opium. The Count died bankrupt of an overdose of morphine. His story, however, lives on. I will not bore you with the details of my journey, nor with the observations I made on the Hungarians and the Serbians. One day, I arrived in a small village. I found those who lived in the house where I intended to stay in a state of confusion. I was about to withdraw, when a man of about thirty came up to me and shook me by the hand. ''Come in, come in, stranger,'' he said. ''Don't let yourself be put off by our sadness.'' He then told me about how his father, whose name was Gorsha, had got up one morning and taken down his long Turkish arquebus. My children, he had said to his two sons, Georges and Pierre, I am going to the mountains to join the hunt for that brigand Ali Beck. Wait for me patiently for ten days, and if I do not return on the tenth, arrange for a funeral mass to be said, for by then I will have been killed.' "'But if I should return after the ten days have passed, "'do not under any circumstances let me come in. "'Forget that I was once your father "'and pierce me through the heart with an aspen stake, "'for then I would no longer be human. "'I would be a cursed vordalac come to suck your blood.' "'Both sons begged him to let them go in his place, "'but he turned his back on them and set out for the mountains. "'The day I arrived in the village,' was the very day that Gorsha had fixed for his return. Georges, the older of the two sons, was a serious and decisive man. His brother Pierre, a handsome youth, appeared to be the favourite of their sister, Sedenka. who was a genuine Slavic beauty. I had not been talking with Sedenka for more than two minutes when I already felt for her an affection that threatened to become something deeper. We were all sitting in front of the house. Suddenly, Georges broke the silence Wife, he said, at exactly what time did the old man set out? At eight o'clock. I can clearly remember hearing the monastery bell. Just at that moment, I heard the sound of the bell ringing eight. We saw a human figure coming out of the darkness of the forest and approaching us. It is he! God be praised! cried Sedenka. The human form came closer. It was a tall old man with a pale stern face. He stopped and stared at his family with eyes that seemed not to see. They were dull, glazed, deep-sunk in their sockets.
3: "'Well,
13: well,' he said in a dead voice. "'Will no one get up to welcome me?' The family went to bed in a part of the house which was separated from my room only by a narrow partition. I overheard confused voices from the other side. Go to sleep, wife, said George, and you, Sedenka, do not worry. I will watch over you. Brother, put in Sedenka in her sweetest voice, there is no need to keep watch at all. Father is already asleep. He seems calm and peaceful enough. Neither of you understands what is going on, said George. Soon sleep began to take possession of my senses. I thought I saw the door of my room opening slowly and old Gorsha standing in the doorway. I felt his dead eyes trying to penetrate my deepest thoughts. With extreme care, he began to walk towards me. With a superhuman effort, I managed to wake up. There was nobody in my room, but as I looked towards the window, I could distinctly see old Gorsha's face pressed against the glass from outside. He moved away from the window, and I could hear his footsteps in the neighbouring room, The child coughed, and I could make out Gorsha's voice. "'You are not asleep, little one?' "'No, grandpapa,' replied the child, "'and I would so like to talk to you.' I thought I could hear Gorsha chuckle as the child got out of bed. I got up and banged my fist against the partition. "'Wake up! Wake up!' I cried. Only Georges showed any sign of movement. "'Where is the old man?' he murmured blearily. "'Quick!' I yelled. "'He's just taken away your child!' George sprinted in the direction of the dark forest. We all assembled in front of the house and after a few minutes of anxious waiting we saw George return with his son. Gorsha himself had disappeared. The next day I learned that the river Danube had begun to freeze over. Drift ice now blocked my route. The highway was expected to be blocked for some days. In any case I could not think of leaving. Even if I could have left curiosity would have held me back. Besides, the more I saw Sedenka, the more I felt I was falling in love with her. At nightfall, we had still discovered nothing about old Gorsha. When at last sleep began to confuse my thoughts, I again felt that the old man was coming towards me. I opened my eyes and saw his waxen face pressed against my window I heard him wandering round the house and tapping gently on the window of George's room. The child groaned and woke up. Is that you, Grandpapa? he asked. It is me, replied the dead man. But I dare not go outside. Papa has forbidden it. There is no need to go outside. Just open the window and embrace me. I leapt to the partition and struck it hard with my fist. In no time at all the household was gathered round the child. He was very weak and breathed with difficulty. At daybreak, I could hear the women sobbing. The child was dead. All these happenings did not prevent my passion for Sedenka from developing more and more. In the daytime, I couldn't talk to her alone. When the whole family had gone to bed, I saw that Sedenka's door was slightly ajar. I pushed open the door and went in. All she was wearing was a nightgown of red silk. She looked more beautiful than ever. Why have you come? What will the family think of me if we are discovered? Sidenka, I will not leave you until you have promised to love me forever. I love you more than my soul. My life's blood is yours. May I not be granted one hour with you in return? Suddenly she began to tremble and looked towards the window, terror-struck. I followed her gaze and clearly saw the corpse-like face of Gorsha staring at us. At precisely that moment, I felt a heavy hand on my shoulder. It was Georges. He said to me, quite calmly, ''My dear guest, I have been to the river. The ice has gone, the road is clear. Nothing now prevents you from leaving. ''There is no need,'' he added, glancing at Sedenka, ''to take your leave of my family.'' After six months, when I was recalled home, I no longer even thought about Sedenka or her family. But one evening, when I was riding in the countryside, I heard a bell ringing the eight o'clock chime. I seemed to recognise that sound. In no time at all, I reached the monastery gate. The old hermit welcomed me. I asked if there was any accommodation available in the village. You can stay where you like in the village, replied the old hermit. "'Thanks to the devil Gorsha, there are plenty of empty houses.' "'What on earth do you mean?' I asked. "'Is old Gorsha still alive? Oh, no. "'He's well and truly buried with a stake through his heart, "'but he rose from the grave to suck the blood of Georges' little son.' "'The child returned one night and knocked on the door, "'crying that he was cold and wanted to come home. "'His foolish mother did not have the strength of mind "'to send him back to the cemetery.' They all went the same way. And Sedenka? Oh, she went mad with grief, poor child. Do not speak to me of her. The word terror has always had the effect on me that a battle cry has on a war horse. I set out immediately to see for myself. The village was deserted. I reached George's. Still no sign of life. All the rooms were empty but Sedenka's showed signs of occupation. Some of her clothes were draped carelessly over the bed. I wrapped myself in my cloak and stretched out on her bed. Soon I was asleep. I dreamed of Sedenka as beautiful, as simple and as loving as she had been when I first met her. I opened my eyes. There was Sedenka standing beside me. Sedenka, I cried sitting up, Is it really you? She looked so ravishing that my vague sense of foreboding turned into a strong desire to remain near her. A strange, almost sensual feeling, part fear, part excitement, filled my whole being. With her beautiful blonde hair falling loose over her shoulders, with her jewels sparkling in the moonlight, she was quite irresistible. Abandoning all restraint, I took her in my arms. Then a strange thing happened. As I held Sedenka against me, one of the points of the cross I wore around my neck stuck sharply into my chest. It affected me like a ray of light passing right through my body. Looking up at Sedenka, I saw for the first time her features, though still beautiful, were those of a corpse that her eyes did not see and that her smile was the distorted grimace of a decaying skull. I turned away from Sedenka to hide the horror which was written on my face. I looked out of the window and saw the satanic figure of Gorsha leaning on a bloody stake and staring at me with the eyes of a hyena. Pressed against the other window were the waxen features of Georges. Time to make for home, I said to myself. Turning back to Sedenka, I raised my voice so that her hideous family would be sure to hear me. I must go and see whether my horse needs feeding. I beg you to stay where you are and to wait for me to come back. I then pressed my mouth against her cold, dead lips and left the room. I found my horse in a panic. I vaulted into the saddle and dug my spurs into my horse's flanks. As I rode out of the gate, I just had time to glimpse a whole crowd gathered round the house, many of them with their faces pressed against the windows. I heard a fearful noise behind me. A thousand discordant voices shrieked, moaned and contended with one another. And I heard a rhythmic stamping, like a troop of foot soldiers advancing in double-quick time. I spurred on my horse. A burning fever coursed through my veins. I heard a voice behind me which cried out, ''Stop! Don't leave me, dearest! I love you more than my soul. Turn back! Turn back! Your life's blood is mine!'' A cold breath brushed my ear and I sensed that Sedenka had leapt on my horse from behind. ''My heart! My soul!'' she cried twisting her arms around me she tried to sink her teeth into my neck and to wrench me from my horse there was a terrible struggle but eventually i managed to grab hold of her by curling one arm around her waist and knotting the other hand in her hair standing bolt upright in my stirrups i threw her to the ground then i became delirious frenzied shapes pursued me george and his brother pierre ran beside the road and tried to block my way I looked over my shoulder and caught sight of old Gorsha, who was using his stake to propel himself forward. I do not know what happened after that. But when I regained consciousness, it was daylight, and I found myself lying near the road next to my horse. So ended a love affair, which should perhaps have cured me forever of the desire to become involved in any others. As it was... Heaven did not allow things to come to that. But I still shudder at the thought that if I had given in to my enemies, I would myself have become a vampire. Tomorrow night, we shall meet the Horla. Sleep well, if you can.
12: David Tennant
13: was the reader and the stories are abridged by Robin Brooks. The programme was produced by Clive Brill for Pacificus Productions and BBC Radio 4.
11: To make up you make up at home Spooky Goof's
14: bubbling lizard lips Bat bones and toad toes Create a ghoulish goo That makes a monster out of you Now that's the
3: face no mother could love Spooky
9: Goof Spine-tinting makeup for Halloween Or any unearthly occasion
10: Before you get close to the big day of your tour You should listen to the record many times To learn exactly where all the scary things should happen Now, before we continue Remember that everything I say here is also in your party guide, so don't forget to refer to it. There are even drawings that show you exactly how to set up and make all the things you will need for the tour. The first thing you should do is decide which room in your home you will use to turn into the haunted house. A family room, den, bedroom or even a garage are fine, but the room shouldn't be too big and it should have a door that leads into the room. Now for the haunted house. There are six scary places on your tour and I will go through each one of them now so you will understand exactly how to set them up. Remember, each step of the tour is in your party guide. The storyteller on the other side of this record is supposed to be a head in a box. It's easy to make him too. Just take a cardboard box about two feet by three feet in size. Choose one that still has flap type lids on it that you can open and close. Now line the inside of the box with aluminum foil. At the back end of the box, cut out a hole just big enough to slip the head of a flashlight through. Then open up a paper clip into a hook and tape it to the top of one of the masks that you get in the kit. Punch the open end of the clip through the top of the box. This will suspend the mask in the middle of the box. Now when you open the flaps at the beginning and end of the tour, All your friends will be able to see is the weird face staring right at them from deep within the box.
9: a monster, created by man, stalked through the country, meaning and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns, and fear grips the village anew. A man, tainted by the blood of his father, can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I shall destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Benson, turn on the generator. Mm-hmm. Produced on a vast scale, universal son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. Basil Rathbone, in his heart, warm human emotions, in his mind, the monster mania. It's alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments I weren't. know, I know. I too thought that we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. Nugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. You'll see that. They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill, grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron, an arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson, her young beauty, a magnet to the menace around her.
7: I hate it here,
5: Wolf. I'm terribly afraid all the time. I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers.
9: werewolf and my mom believed me
12: it was walking along a good probably seven to ten seconds before it had turned its head
15: that thing that was no dog that was too big to be a dog that thing was bigger than me
12: that thing was stalking cornfields jumping on cars and feasting on roadkill for two years people in Elkhorn Wisconsin whispered about a king-sized creature who roamed Bray Road
9: It had really big claws, it was holding its roadkill like it had elbows, and it was kneeling on two knees, like a human being might
15: do.
12: Eerie stories like that prompted Linda Godfrey, a reporter and cartoonist, to investigate. It was all just too bizarre not to be for real.
11: When you live in a small town and you say you've seen something that looks like a dog man or a wolf man you know, you're going to get some ridicule, and they did. So they had no reason to say this.
12: Despite the ridicule, beast believers came forward in Godfrey's Beast of Bray Road article. Like Doris Gibson, who'd seen it on Halloween night, 1991. Driving down Bray Road, she had gotten out of her car when she thought she had hit an animal.
15: It
3: was foggy out and I was a little bit afraid. And this big thing come, just like trucking, you know? just trucking down the road at me, man. I looked at it, and I'm like, ah! And I ran, I got back in the car. You know, and before I peeled off, that thing scratched the back of the car.
12: Tom Brichta's car was also scratched by the creature from Bray Road. My adrenaline started pumping, Um, I was scared. But this is a creature that likes to cross county lines. Tom saw it twice on Route 106. We were having a good time and stuff. We were singing to the oldies, and. Uh, all the stuff, and then all of a sudden I, I noticed this on the side of the road.
3: He was big and I, he looked intimidating. I, I, I was scared of
12: his appearance. Back on Bray Road, Lori Andresi remembers her close encounter with the creature in 1990.
3: I saw it
9: kneeling on the side of the road and it was eating something. And I came up from behind it and I slowed down because I thought it was a person at first. So I came up from behind it, and I realized it wasn't a person when I saw its pointy ears.
12: From those descriptions, Linda drew up this composite picture of the beast. All agreed it was very big, with pointy ears, and broad-chested with a shaggy coat, streaked with silver, gray, or black. It had brought its right hand up, stopped, looked over by the car, real nonchalant, and made eye contact with both Scott and I, and gave like this this sneer like it was challenging us like you know what are you going to do about it you know i'm here you're there i'm bigger than you are you can't do anything about it
15: one two three four devil ain't lazy no siree devil ain't lazy no siree Roams around with sticks and stones, passing out his moans and groans. The devil ain't no lazy bones. He works 24 hours a day. The devil ain't lazy, no sir. No, the devil ain't lazy, no sir. Likes to see us fight and fuss, he makes us mean enough to curse, then he blames it all on us. who work 24 hours a day. He travels like a lightning streak and he strikes from town to town. Till he gets you when you're weak and tear your playhouse down. The devil ain't lazy, no sirree. no, the devil ain't lazy, no he tells us he won't hurt a fly, Clearly makes us steal a knife, keeps us sinning until we die, we 24, 24 hours a day. Play. He's pitchfork out each night. He was a folks in awful fright. I know he does it just for spite. He works 24, 24 hours a day. day. Devil ain't lazy. No, oh, the devil ain't lazy. No, he tells us how to find success. but I know you wind up in distress. I'll tell you why. Devil is an awful mess. Work 24, 24 hours a day. day. He likes to see things scorching burns. I don't make no excuse. If he catches you, he'll turn you anyway, but loose. Now nah, the devil ain't lazy. Devil The devil amaze him. So, if you think you're strong and brave, smart enough to not behave, you got one foot in the grave. He works 24 hours a day. 24 24 hours a day. day. Yes, he does. He works 24 hours a day.
5: He works 24 hours a day. Look out, because this Halloween, Toys R Us is your Halloween
4: headquarters.
5: You'll find every trick or treat under the moon. A monstrous selection of costumes and a dungeon full of decorations. At prices so low, you'll howl. So this Halloween, bring the entire family to Toys R Us for a Halloween selection so huge. It's scary.
10: (laughs) If you listen to these instructions carefully, learn all the steps and rehearse your tour several times. And at the same time, refer to the tour section of your party guide. Your tour will run smoothly and keep in time with the story on the record. This way it will seem very real and very scary for all your friends. And it will be really exciting for everyone, including you. So have fun.
3: But I can't find them for the life of me And there's Halloween spooks Outside my window frame
16: Get away from it all
17: we offer you escape
16: it is midnight and you are alone suddenly the room is plunged into darkness you sit frozen with terror because something is there behind you something you feared would come something from which you must escape.
17: Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure.
16: Tonight, we escape to London, and a world made strange and terrifying by the workings of an ancient barbaric curse as Montague R. James tells it in his weird story, Casting the Runes.
14: My name is Edward Dunning. I'm a scientist. I'm used to dealing with facts, not fairy tales. I'm regarded as Britain's leading authority on medieval life. And as such, I've studied much of the ancient fears and barbaric superstitions of those times. I should have been the first to scoff at any suggestion that the ancient powers of evil, the black magic of Teutonic days, could be believed and practiced in the 20th century. A few weeks ago, I should have laughed had you told me that a curse, a hex, could kill a man. Today, I cannot laugh. It has happened... To a man I know of. And now, it's happening to me. My first presentment of danger came on that day a few weeks ago, when I dropped in to see Alfred Smythe, secretary of the National Science Association, and found him in a state of irritation.
8: Last it all, Dunning, I almost wish you hadn't been so brutally honest in your report on that Carswell paper. Why? What's the trouble? Oh, he's such a frightful fellow. He's raising a terrible row. You mean Carswell himself? Yes, it's bad enough a vicious charlatan like that calling himself a scientist. But now he's taking all his vindictiveness out on me.
14: <laughs> Sorry, old chap, it's really me he'd like to get at.
8: As a matter of fact, that's just what his last letter was about. He wants to know what supposed authority wrote the report rejecting his paper.
14: You didn't give him my name?
8: Heavens, no. As a matter of fact, Dunning, I haven't and I won't, for a very special reason. Call it silly, call it crazy, call it what you will. I have an uncanny feeling about that man, Carswell. Hmm? Why? Do you know anything about him? Nothing.
14: I've never seen him. I only know that he wrote a paper called The Truth of Alchemy was hopeless precisely and why was it hopeless well besides being abominably written it was supposed to prove that alchemy black magic and such rot actually exists I think the man really believes it.
8: undoubtedly he does and that's what I mean he lives in an isolated old house in Warwickshire he's rarely seen elsewhere and in his whole career he's written only two things this paper and the history of witchcraft published ten years ago Yes, of course I remember now so that's the man yes Hmm? and that book was even worse than this paper the man has a warped mind. I'm sure he's tried every unhealthy experiment in alchemy, witchcraft, and black magic. There's no telling to what lengths of vindictiveness a man like that might go. Well,
14: it does sound a bit queer, but...
8: She... Not queer,
14: Dunning. Evil. Oh, come. Man has a right to believe what he likes. He has a right to be angry with me. Here I've glibly scoffed at the man's life's work.
8: Well, perhaps I'm being overly suspicious and imaginative, but... I think there's more than anger involved here, Edward. Hmm? This may sound fantastic to you, but, well, John Harrington wrote the report condemning that witchcraft book of Carswell's ten years ago. Three months later, Harrington was dead. Hmm. Alfred, what's the connection? Harrington died under very peculiar circumstances. He was walking home alone late one night, and suddenly he screamed, broke into a run, lost his hat and stick, and climbed up a tree. A dead branch gave way. He fell and broke his neck. No one's ever been able to explain why it happened. Come now, Alfred Jolly, you're not suggesting. Oh, I don't this... know what I'm suggesting. I only know that after he reviewed Carswell's book, John Harrington didn't have a moment's peace. Now you've written an unfavorable review of his, this paper. If I were you, I should keep that fact well hidden. <laughs> oh, Alfred! Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs>
14: Yes, I laughed at Alfred Smythe's fears. How could I have known then that I was to feel the same terror, the same agonized fear, which gripped the heart of John Harrington as he crouched, panting, on the branch of a tree for another moment or two of life, while beneath him the thing came closer and closer? <laughs> I'd almost forgotten the incident when, a few nights later, I was riding home on a late train. I was half-drowsing in my seat, barely keeping awake by looking idly at the car card at Christmas. The man directly opposite me must have been doing the same, because suddenly I heard him say,
17: Here, now, what can that one be advertising?
14: I followed his eyes to the window beside my head. What I saw brought me bolt upright in my seat.
17: In memory of John Arrington died September 18th, 1937, by falling from a tree. Three months were allowed. Mommy, what do you say that means, sir? Well, I... I don't know.
14: But I did know. Smythe had been right. The affair with Coswell was not over, but only begun. I asked the conductor about the card, but he was as puzzled as I was. He had never seen it before. The card must have been put there expressly for me. That meant that Carswell knew it was I who had reviewed his paper. How had he found out? I got the answer the next day. I was in the select manuscript department of the British Museum doing some research in the quiet, almost deserted room. I'd been working steadily for an hour, oblivious to my surroundings, when suddenly, just at my shoulder, I heard a voice. What Dunning,
8: you are allowed three
14: months. I swung around in my seat. There was no one within 20 feet of me. I sat for a moment, shaken, and then I stooped to pick up the papers I had brushed to the floor. I straightened up to find a stout elderly gentleman standing in front of me. Excuse me, sir. Uh, yes? May I give you this paper? I think it should be yours. Oh, yes, so it is. I thought I had them all. This one seemed to have slid across the floor. Thank you very much. Not at all, sir.
8: Good afternoon.
14: He walked slowly away and out of the door. A kindly, stout old gentleman. But there was something about him that made me feel strange. I went over to the attendant. Uh,
8: Yes, Mr. Dunning? Uh, Did you
14: notice that gentleman
8: I was just speaking to? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, Can you tell me his name? Why, that's Mr. Carswell. As a matter of fact, he was asking about you only the other day.
14: Asking about me?
8: Well, he asked who were the great authorities on medieval science. Of course, I told him you were the only one in the country. Oh, I see. Uh, Would you like to meet him, Mr. Dunning? I'll see if I can... Uh, uh, No. No, thank
14: you. It was as simple as that. Now, Carswell knew what would be his next move. What was I to expect? I reached home at dusk, and trouble stood on my doorstep in the long face and stooped form of my family doctor.
18: I've had to upset your household arrangements, I'm sorry to say, Dunning. I've had to send both your servants to hospital. But what happened? Uh, Something like termine poisoning, I should think. It's nothing serious. Well
14: what could have caused it
18: well that's the rather odd thing they tell me they bought some shellfish from a hawker and headed for lunch I've made inquiries but I can't find that a hawker called at any other house on this street
14: was this the next move if so it had succeeded I was alone in the house and my nervousness increased as darkness closed in and the hours advanced toward midnight. I went to bed. But almost immediately, I thought I heard something. My study door opening downstairs. I went out and leaned over the banister. There was nothing moving, nothing visible. There was only a sudden, surprising gust of warm air playing about my legs. I went back into my room and locked the door suddenly the lights went out. No doubt it was only a blown fuse, but the chills were playing up and down my spine. I went over to the bed and reached for my watch under the pillow. I suppose I wanted to find out the time, I don't know why. But fumbling on the pillow, my hand touched something far different from a watch. It was like a mouth with sharp teeth and hair around it, not human at all.
4: (laughs) I fled
14: from my bedroom and spent a long and miserable night locked in a spare room, my ear to the door. But nothing came. I was not disturbed again. In the morning, I searched the house and found nothing unusual. But the mark of fear must have been stamped on my face, for Smythe noticed it next day.
8: Darling, you look as if you hadn't slept for weeks. Is anything
14: wrong? I... I don't know, Alfred. I... uh, Yes, there is. Carswell knows. How? They told him at the museum. Of
8: course, we should have thought of that. Has anything happened yet?
14: I don't know. It's too fantastic. It's probably my mind, hypnotic suggestion or something. But like that man Harrington, I have three months left. Edward. must have been hearing things. I'm all on age. I don't know what to think.
8: John Harrington had a brother, Henry. Perhaps I'd better get you in touch with him. He might know more about this man, Carswell. Yes, yes, do it. And quickly
14: three months, is not a lot of time. It was arranged. That night, I found myself walking down the dark street that led from the railway station to the Harrington home. It must have been along this same street that John Harrington had walked that last night. where he had broke and run, it must have been one of these trees bordering the lonely road in which he had spent his last. Horrible moments. The way was dark, and there was no living soul in sight. And suddenly, complete terror gripped me. Somehow I knew that I was being followed. At first I only felt it, and then I heard it. I walked steadily on for a moment, my stomach like ice. It was getting louder, coming closer unconsciously my step quickened I could barely control myself I wanted to scream and run the thing came closer closer I confess I broke and ran ran madly for my life I was at a little side street I turned down the doubling back toward the railway station I thought I would never make it but finally bright lights loomed before my eyes and I think that I never have been so grateful for human companionship
8: there's no need to run sir The 840 won't be along for another five
14: minutes. I felt very foolish. I couldn't bring myself to walk back down that street to Harrington's. I could only take the train home furtively and call Harrington next morning to beg his forgiveness. He seemed very understanding and asked no questions. Undoubtedly, Smythe had told him something about me. At any rate, he agreed to visit me at a place two nights later. And when he arrived and was made welcome, he began to talk about his brother.
18: Yes, Mr. Dunning, John was in a very bad state for weeks before the accident, if that's what it was. The principal thing seemed to be the notion that he was being followed. It became an obsession.
14: Yes, I know. I don't think his death was an accident. Then perhaps you can explain it? No. But I have one clue. Your brother reviewed a book very severely not long before he died. Just lately, I happened to cross the path of the man who wrote that book.
18: And his name, of course, is Carswell. That's right. As far as I'm concerned, that does it. Before he died, John was beginning to feel, much against his will, that Carswell was at the bottom of his trouble. Why? Well, it doesn't make sense. None of this does, but tell me. My brother liked music. He went to all the concerts in town, and he made a hobby of collecting the programs. One night, about three months before his death, He brought one home and showed it to me. I nearly missed this one, he said. It seems he'd lost his and was hunting for it under his seat, when a neighbor, a rather stout elderly gentleman, offered to give John his.
14: The kind gentleman was Mr. Coswell.
18: Undoubtedly. I started to leaf through the program and noticed on the second page some rather curious letters, carefully written there in black and red ink. Neither of us could make much of it, except that the letters seemed to be runic.
14: Runes. Runes, of course.
18: Well, John thought it might be important and debated whether he shouldn't try to return the program to the stout gentleman. But just then the door blew open and a gust of air, of strangely warm air, blew into the room. In a flash, it took the program and blew it straight into the fire.
14: Yes, your brother was right. He should have returned it. Well, there's nothing to be done then. Perhaps not. But do you know what runic letters mean? Well,
18: they're all pre-Druid script, I believe. The kind of writing the barbaric tribes
14: used long before the Romans invaded Britain. Yes, that's right. Casting the runes, they used to call it in the old days. Casting the runes. Uh, What do you mean? Well, it was a curse, a a hex. In primitive England, people thought by casting the runes, that is, handing a person a piece of paper with certain runic letters on it, that uh, you could put that person out of the way, destroy him. It's an old superstition. The only way to lift the curse was to return the paper to the one who gave it to you give it back without his knowing it i don't believe that kind of nonsense (laughs) neither do i then what was it that killed john i don't know perhaps his fear of the wounds perhaps brooding about it becoming neurotic thinking he saw things and heard things and touched things that weren't there perhaps his own mind drove him to death
18: and what's the difference once you're
14: dead no difference at all
18: Casting
14: the runes. Oh, it's rubbish. Yes, of course, but... Good heavens. What is it? I just remembered that day at the British Museum. He cast the runes on me. I went swiftly to the writing table, Harrington close behind me. My portfolio was there, full of the scribbled notes I'd been working on that day in the museum. And as I took it from my shaking hands and began leaping desperately through them, one strip of thin, light paper slipped and fluttered toward the open window with uncanny quickness. But Harrington was even quicker and slammed the window shut just in time. Got it? Oh, thank heaven. If it were lost or destroyed like your brother's... Then you
18: wouldn't be able to return it to Mr. Carswell. Yes, look at it. It's identical with the one John got.
14: I looked at the flimsy paper. The characters, carefully traced in red and black, were runes, all right. That ancient language used by the Aborigines of prehistoric Britain. I couldn't decipher them. But as Harrington and I stood looking into each other's eyes, each of us could read the other's thoughts. Science or not, 20th century or not, this sheet of foolscap spells death for its possessor. It spells death for you. you must be returned. Yes, I know. Must go back in such a way that it doesn't. that he doesn't know he's received it. That means we can't simply mail it. No, we can't. We must do it personally. That'll take
18: doing. Well, he knows you by sight, doesn't he? Yes. You must shave your beard. It'll alter your appearance. He might strike any time. I have three months, as what the warning said. We've got to make good on this, Dunning. I've searched ten years for my brother's murderer, and now. He must not escape.
14: I dare not go near Carswell. So Harrington volunteered to keep a watch on him, to let me know when our chance came to return the rooms, if it was ever to come. It was only a night or two after Harrington was there that I arrived home and found the calendar had come in the mail. When I examined it, I found everything after November 19th had been torn out. The next night, I had another envelope of the mail. This time it was a woodcut, an illustration torn out of a book, showing a dark, moonlit road and a man walking on it. And right behind him came a huge, dark shape, some awful demon creature. Under it were written some lines from the ancient Mariner, And as I sat alone and read them aloud, I felt that now familiar gust of warm air playing about my legs. The man walks on and turns no more his head because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. i knew the face of my terror and it was with me always walking down the dark street at night i heard its footsteps behind me in my lonely house at midnight it roamed the halls like the ancient mariner and john harrington i never turned to look i couldn't my nerves were going and i could do nothing but wait the days the weeks slipped by and still harrington had no plans I checked off the days on the calendar Carswell had sent. Now there were eight days remaining, then six, then three, two, one. It was the evening of the 18th. My last day on earth was to begin at midnight. I was sitting alone in my living room, bathed in perspiration, fighting to keep my nerves in check. Suddenly I felt that warm gust of air... Listened. There were soft footsteps. A shadow seemed to cross the hall door. And then the footsteps blended into a loud banging.
4: No, no, not yet. I've still got one day more. Not yet.
18: Henry, it's me. Uh, Ah, heaven. Henry, What's the matter, man? What is it? It was you, you knocked knocking on the door. Your footsteps? Yes, of course. Oh, thank him. I, I thought I, I... Look, man, you've got to pull yourself together. It's tonight we have our chance. What chance? Carswell leaves Victoria Station by boat train tonight at 10. I'll get on with him there. You take the car I brought and drive to Croydon. Get on the train there and be sure to bring the paper.
14: Yes, yes, I have it.
18: You've shaved already.
14: Good. Everything depends on his not recognizing you. Mr. Harrington, suppose he changes his mind. Suppose he doesn't take that trip. My time runs out tomorrow. He'll be there, and you'll do it. You'll do it well. You've got to. I stood on the platform of Croydon my mind in a daze. I thought the train would never come, but it did. I saw Harrington at the window. He stared coolly at me. Of course, there was to be no sign of recognition. I entered the coach and slowly made my way down the aisle to the compartment where Harrington sat. Opposite him, staring full into my face, was Carswell. He looked up as I sat down. His eyes were heavy-lidded, his face bland. It was impossible to tell whether he knew. The train started. The next stop was Dover at the end of the line. My last chance. It was time to cast the rules. strange ride. Coswell and I seated face to face staring into each other's eyes. Harrington off to the side pulling at his face with twitching fingers. If I could have only had a few whispered moments with him to plan our strategy. But that was impossible. The moments dragged tortuously. No one moved. Then suddenly Coswell leaned forward. I beg your pardon sir. Haven't we met? Uh, met? Well I don't think so sir. Not unless you're in the plumbing business. Plumbing? No. Hard I, I hadn't planned it that way. The words, the accent, just seemed to come by themselves. And Coswell sat back, an enigmatic expression on his face. I wished desperately to know what he was thinking. Then suddenly he got up and went out into the corridor. Was this my chance? I was about to slip over to his bags to see if there were a way to secrete the rooms within them, when I caught Harrington's eye and read a warning Carswell from the corridor was watching, waiting to see if we recognized each other. I muttered a prayer of thanks I hadn't moved. Carswell came back and took his seat. As he did so, wild, exultant hope surged up in my throat, for something slipped off his seat and dropped noiselessly to the floor. It was his ticket case, and he didn't see it. It was a small cardboard ticket case with a pocket on the cover. If I could just get to it and slip that tiny piece of paper into that pocket. For 15 agonizing minutes, I sat there and stared at it. If only Coswell would go out. But he sat stolidly staring straight ahead. We were coming into the outskirts of Dover, the train slowing down. Suddenly, Harrington stood up, reached up to the rack above Coswell to get his coat and bag. I stared at him blankly for a moment, surprised by his sudden clumsiness. And then I realized what he was up to. The bag, the coat, a briefcase, all came tumbling down upon Coswell. What the devil? Oh, I say I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. Clumsy fool, you might have injured me. What were you trying to do? Well, it was my only chance. Coswell stood facing anyway. Hadrington. I, think... I reached down, got the ticket case, and with trembling it. fingers slid the paper into the pocket. Of course I'm... He turned sharply to me, and I I'm extended good the good case toward right. him. Uh excuse me, sir. Is this yours? Yes, it's my ticket case. where did you find it? Here on the floor. Must have dropped off when... this. Yes. I'm much obliged to you, sir. Not at all. Not at all. He looked at me fiercely, his rage at Harrington still twisting his face into a devil's mask. Then he glanced briefly into the ticket case and put it into his pocket. <laughs> On the railway pier of Dover, Harrington and I followed a few steps behind Carswell. I felt like I might faint. Carswell went straight to the gangway of the boat, and there the purser stopped him. Sir,
17: does your friend have a ticket? My friend? What the devil do you mean? I'm traveling alone. Well, that's funny. I could have sworn there was another gentleman right there beside you, walking just at your elbow. Well, there isn't. And I suggest you see an oculist. Oh, I, I didn't see. I just felt. Sorry, sir. It must have been your rugs. My mistake.
18: Come on, darling. Our job's done.
14: I didn't sleep that night. I lay awake and listened. But there were no footsteps. No warm gusts of air. Nothing to disturb me. All day I felt remarkably free. Although this was to have been my last day on earth. But only just now, when Harrington came in, could I really relax.
18: Well, Jennings, have you seen the afternoon paper yet? I know.
14: Not yet. Well, here.
18: Look at it. On the second page.
14: There. Abbeville, France. An English traveler examining the front of St. Wolfram's Cathedral today was struck on the head and killed instantly by a stone falling from the scaffolding. A note of mystery was added by the fact that although the cathedral was undergoing repairs, no workman was on the scaffolding at the time of the accident. The traveler was identified by papers found on him as a Mr. Carswell of Warwickshire.
18: Uh, Of course, it could have been an accident.
14: Yes. Yes, it could have been.
17: is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. And tonight brought you Casting the Runes by Montague R. James. Adapted for radio by Irving Ravitch and John Dunkel. With John McIntyre as Edward Dunning, Jan Wolfe as Harrington, and Bill Conrad as Coswell. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhr. Next week...
16: You are trapped in a hidden valley high in the Andes walled in by sheer rock precipices. And surrounding you, closing in on you, is a band of blind men who want your eyes.
17: Next week, we escape with H.G. Wells' gripping story, The Country of the Blind. Good night, then, until this same time next week when we again offer you Escape,
6: Has been a magical night. We saw a scary monster changed into a beautiful, happy, and safe little princess. How about you? Will you follow the lead of the little princess and have a safe and super Halloween this year?
0: Well, I don't know about you, Uncle Frank, but that certainly inspired me for the rest of the season. We hope it does the same for all of you too. And we wish everybody a great Halloween and a good night. Uncle Frank, before we go, what's the one last thing?
2: I thought we'd go out with a delightfully inappropriate duet between Rosemary Clooney and Boris Karloff. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See you next month. You know,
7: I'm really not such a bad sort once you get to know me. I'm not so good in a crowd But when I get you alone You'd be surprised
3: He isn't much at a dance But then when he takes you home You'd be surprised He doesn't look like much of a lover But don't
7: judge a book by its cover
3: He has the face of an angel, but there's a devil in his eye. He's such a delicate thing.
7: But when I start him to squeeze, you'd be surprised.
3: He doesn't look very strong, but when you sit on his knees, you'd You'd be surprised.
7: surprised. At a party or at a ball, I've got to admit I'm nothing
3: at all. But in a Morris chair, you'd You'd be be surprised. surprised. He's not so good in a house, but on a bench in the park, you'd be surprised.
7: I'm not so much in the light, but when I get in the dark,
3: you'd be surprised. On a streetcar or in a train. You'd think
7: I was born without any brain. But
3: in a taxi cab, you'd You'd be surprised. surprised.